my name is Christian. I'm heading the company building unit Forward 31 of Porsche Digital and I'm here in the room with Tim Leberecht, the co-founder, co-CEO and co-curator of the House of Beautiful Business. This is a brand new episode of the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast season two. And we are here in Berlin. Tim, where are we exactly and what will follow after us? We're sitting in a really nice lounge in Berlin Mitte and... Um We will listen to a conversation between Albert Wenger and Natalie Kofler. And in the second season of Next Visions of the Next Visions podcast, the conversations have changed. Our times have changed, obviously, in light of the pandemics and the conversations have changed as well. They're gonna meet online and they'll have a remote conversation. Uh, and this conversation is about new currencies. You could argue that any crisis generates new currencies because we ascribe value to different things. It's always an opportunity to examine what we find, what we deem valuable and what the ethical implications are. And that's the conversation the two of them are having. Albert Wenger is a managing partner at the VC firm, venture capital firm Union Square Ventures, one of the early investors mm -hmm. in Twitter and Foursquare, and Natalie Kofler. Natalie Kofler is a trained molecular biologist. She's the founding director of Editing Nature at Yale University and a bioethics lecturer at Harvard Medical School. And she has done a lot of work on the ethical implications of gene editing technology, but also on what some people call immunocapital. And this conversation is interesting. Venture capitalist, on the, basically on the, uh, the avant-garde of exponential technology. And on the other hand, on the other side, Natalie Kofler, who's examining the ethical implications of that technology. That's amazing. I think we should highlight that in this uh, season, we got more to the extreme, basically. So the beautiful minds we bring together are more extreme. So I'm really curious now what the connection between these two guys are. So listen into the new episode. Hi, Albert. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Great to meet you, too. I think we're supposed to introduce ourselves. You want to go ahead? Uh, sure. Um, so I'm Natalie Kofler. I am currently in Canada right now, just outside Toronto, which is where I grew up. But I've been living in the U.S. for the past 15 years. And um, I ended up coming up just at the beginning of March. And now it looks like I'll be here for quite some time because our borders are, are still closed, which is fine by me. Luckily, I can be working from afar. I am a scientist by training. So I did my doctorate work in biomedical sciences But now I work a lot as a more of a bioethicist and really around new technologies and their governance and, and regulations. So you know kind of where I'm coming from. Social justice is a really, um, really leading motivation for me. And I think a lot about how can we make and create futures where, you know, they're designed by, uh, by a broader vision and we can give more voice to more kinds of people and how we make decisions. That's great. I am Albert Wenger. I am recording this remotely from a place in upstate New York. New York City is normally my home. Um, I'm a, a partner at a firm called Union Square Ventures, where we invest in companies and projects that uh, broaden access. That's our goal, broaden access to knowledge, capital, and well-being. And uh, I'm very interested in how we can all create a better future with some of the new technologies that we are all working on. Well, this will be an interesting conversation then to see how we're envisioning these futures to look like. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So I think the topic that we're supposed to be talking about, uh, broadly speaking, is new currencies, but it might be worth starting at a different place, maybe where you started. And, and I'd love to hear you expand on that, which is, you know, there's obviously a lot of conversation at the moment about uh, justice and what that means. And so be curious to hear from you what your take is on what that means or, or what the most pressing issues are that are present themselves in that light. When I think about justice, I think a lot about, obviously, to be clear, I'm thinking about how do we make fair processes and fair decisions. So a lot of what I think about is um, the idea of participatory justice, right? So who has access to creating decisions that will impact our societies? And how can we make sure that that decision-making table is expanded so that more people, particularly those who are already structurally marginalized by society, can have a voice in the futures that we're creating? So it's obviously, for me, been a very emotionally, and I'm sure for you as well, very emotionally um, challenging 
uh, last several months for many reasons, but uh, with really focusing on the U.S. and understanding how things that I've been concerned about for a long time, as I'm sure you have have too, of inequity and racial um, inequity in particular, and how recent events, particularly with this pandemic, have really shined light on those sorts of disparities. And so when I think about moving forward from this time, I think a lot about how do we ensure that not only more people are recognized in how decisions are made so that we ensure everybody has equal access to the ability to live in dignity and to flourish, but how do we go further than that and actually give more people agency to make those decisions? So when I think about that in the biotech world, which is where I where I sit a lot, those play out in, for example, CRISPR gene editing and new technologies like genetic technologies that we're talking about. And how do we, again, broaden those conversations so that more people have a chance to steer a technology that will likely impact all of us on, on many levels? So that's those are sort of the things that I give a lot of thought to. And also just thinking a lot about if we don't take the do the really hard work of, of reckoning with history, reckoning with current inequities, particularly if in my case in science and medicine, I, I don't see how we can create new technologies that are really a benefit to everyone and create a more healthy future for everyone. And, and um, are there specific sort of proposals that uh, you think would help broaden this sort of participation in these decisions? Yeah, so I look at it at multiple levels, right? So as someone who's in academia, I obviously look at it and how we train our students. How do we raise awareness of these inequities and justice and power dynamics so that they can be agents to make change? And I think that's a place that there's a lot of room for improvement and a lot of potential to, to create transformation and shifts. It then goes to the science, you know, to the labs and the technology developers themselves. So how do we create a more open and inclusive process in how we're designing new technologies? Whose vision of the future is getting to shape these technologies? It's been a pretty narrow group of people um, so far. And how do we make that larger? So how do we create better avenues for communication between scientists and, and society? How to create a more diverse scientific enterprise and technology enterprise that represent more diverse lived experiences and worldviews? And then the third level that I look at a lot, too, is, is the policy and governance level, right? So who's at the table making regulatory decisions and commissions that are choosing how things should be moving forward? How do we make those a more inclusive and diverse um, scenario? Not only with who our representatives are at the table, but also creating more avenues, again, for public engagement and in those sorts of conversations. So that's sort of, and I think a lot more around sort of the nonprofit space or the academic space and where technology is driven there. I'd be really curious to hear sort of your, your um, thoughts on the more, you know, profit driven models or sort of in the more um, private sector models that you're thinking about, I'm sure similar kinds of things. Yeah. And, and, you know, there can be no doubt that a certain type of entrepreneur has had it much easier to raise funding than many groups. You know, at Unisco Ventures, we are no um, no exception here. I think we, uh, you know, took us a while to really reckon with we're not funding enough women entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and um, I think we've made a lot of progress on that in our portfolio. But the truth is, we've backed uh, only a couple of black entrepreneurs mm -hmm. uh, across more than 100 companies, and that's definitely another area where we know we need to improve. So, I think that there's a lot that can be done from the large pools of capital in the world. So uh, pension funds and university endowments um, and some of the very large uh, investors like the Black Rocks and the Fidelities of the world, to the extent that they change some of the criteria by which they figure out what they want to put money behind, uh, that'll have the, the sort of biggest impact. Any one particular venture capital firm um, evolves rather slowly. So for example, Uh, yeah, we've grown the partnership by like a partner every few years. So <laughs> it's a very slow evolution. And, and also many of these firms tend to be very small. So I'm curious to what degree, you know, as you think about these things, to what degree you think that we can actually know uh, early on how technology might play itself out. So, you know, And I'll, I'll give this as an example from a, a very accessible one that we've been involved with, which is, you know, I remember when we led the Series A in Twitter, people were like, oh, who's going to want to hear who had what for lunch? This is such a <laughs> trivial thing. 
I think that's not the discussion we're having about today about Twitter and and there are many other very valuable discussions to be had about Twitter today and, and the role of Twitter in the information sphere and how uh, aggressively Twitter should be monitoring or regulating its system or not. But I guess it's difficult to see how, you know, years and years ago when, you know, this was, here's a text message that you can send from your phone and it goes to a site where other people can receive it. So I, I, I'd love to you know, maybe from a biology example, um, before we maybe go to the question of, of sort of currencies, I'd love to get an example from you as to how you think about evaluating the trajectories of things that are so, I guess, from my perspective, hard to know where they'll go. Well, I think Twitter is a unique example, too, because it is so it has become almost in a way so amorphous, no one could have predicted its trajectory. And I think that that's, that's makes it challenging. However, when we look at Facebook and Twitter, we're seeing some negative outcomes, you know, around hate speech that's been on these sorts of platforms, ways that they can sort of perpetuate untruths. And so I do think that one way that I look at that is, you know, we all each individual, we all have our blind spots, right? And when we come to sort of thinking about technologies, we're doing two things. One, we're using whatever sort of facts or evidence we have to kind of think about how this could work. What's the current situation? What do we know? And then secondly, especially when we're moving into emerging technologies like something like Twitter all those years ago, or now if we're thinking about CRISPR gene editing or AI and different machine learning processes or self-driving cars, um, there's a huge amount of uncertainty, right? We really don't know how this is going to play out. We can only make our best guesses. And so when we're dealing with those uncertainty and any human being, we have to employ our, our, our normative lens. We have to employ, we employ our values. We employ our past experiences and lived experiences. Um, we employ sort of what risks we're willing to take and what level of risk we're willing to take to fulfill that, you know, to fulfill that vision because we, we only know so such a tiny fraction of what's, what reality is going to be like. And that's where you get in trouble if you don't have a broad enough group steering that vision, right? So each person, you know, is going to have their respective individual blind spots. And the more lenses you can shine on this issue and envisioning the future, you can minimize those blind spots in the way that they can actually be able to serve a greater proportion of society. So one example I think a lot about is, is self-driving cars, right? You know, if we think about something like a self-driving car, you know, you can you can have all sorts of motivations for how you want to design that car. And of course, safety is a really big one. But if you have a, a group of people that aren't really thinking about, say, environmental sustainability, that could be a huge risk that self-driving cars could could bring in. You could have, you know, situations where you're actually creating more carbon emissions. And so that it's a simple example, but it's a question of why you need to have sort of diverse expertise and diverse lived experiences, I think, to be able to ensure that you sort of look at these new emerging technologies as comprehensively as possible and so that they reflect a broader swath of society and society's needs. So that's sort of what I think. I mean, I think where you're in such an interesting uh at such an interesting place in the whole sort of network of things is that as we know in our in our the way our economies are built you know money drives things right and so there's a lot of power i think in where money gets put both at the venture capital level but also where we invest our money personally and so i think there's a lot of potential uh, for someone in your position to really shift sort of the dominant framework of who gets to sort of design and and decide on on new emergent technologies which i think is very exciting yeah, there, there is, of course, a lot of different forces at work, right? So if you take crypto, for example, a lot of the people who early on embraced and became active in crypto were people who had a certain kind of mindset about the world. And as one sort of VC firm, I don't, in fact, think we have much you know, influence. I mean, once we are investors in a company, we can try and we often do to get them to build teams that have more perspectives at the table, uh, I think for you know selfish reasons as investors, because if you have big blind spots, I think those will eventually catch up with you. Mm -hmm. But I think the ecosystems as a whole, how they emerge, I think there is uh, fairly little that any one firm uh, can do to, to shape that. And I also think that um, you know the, these, um, my own, 
conception of technology always is that uh, sort of what it does is it kind of increases the space of what is possible. Mm. And within that space of what is possible, there are sort of good things and bad things. But it's often actually quite difficult to know what's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, so, and something can be a good thing for a while and turn into a bad thing. I mean, mm -hmm. cars are a great example of this, mm -hmm. right? I mean, cars did a huge amount to give individuals mobility. And um, that individual mobility um, had lots of transformative effects, uh, some of which have been positive and some of which have been very negative. And of course, now the biggest one is that they are, you know, a great source of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. You know, and they've been a source of um, accidents in cities that have optimized for car traffic over pedestrian and bicycle traffic. So I like the conception personally that um, our job as investors is to get more perspectives onto a problem as our companies build solutions, because that'll provide sort of views onto things. But it is also true that I'm a big believer separately in competition, right? So mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons we have so many discussions today around what a specific company is doing is because there isn't enough competition and there isn't enough of a sense that, um, uh, you know, oh, if I don't like this approach that this company is taking, I can use a, a different product, right? You know, in clothing, for example, I can decide that I think Patagonia, for example, is more values aligned with me than Zara, let's say. And uh, that's a choice I can easily make. Uh, in social networks, that's not really an available choice. So a lot, I think, of what we need to work on isn't just the sort of makeup of uh, any um, one company, but also what does the system look like as a whole? And to the extent that power winds up in just very few places, market power, that's never a good recipe for uh, getting lots of voices heard because, you know, monopolists tend to do what monopolists do, which is sort of not listen to anybody for the most part. So, no, I'm just wondering, you know, how do we actually create competition that allows for more people to find things that align with their values? So, for example, there's been a big push right now about supporting Black-owned businesses, Right. But we have, a, we have a scarcity of Black-owned business in some of these very large industries, right? And so I think there's a real concern is that right now we don't even have representative competition that can allow us to choose things that align, certain consumers to choose what aligns with their needs and their value systems. And so the question there is how do you actually – I guess the question is how do you diversify competition? Yeah, to me sort of um, there's two big aspects to that. One obviously is how do you enable more people to be entrepreneurs? And that starts with some level of financial security, right? Yeah. So I've been a longtime proponent of universal basic income. If you look at the um, statistics in the U.S., you know, we tend to think of startups as being this sort of, you know, like exploding trend. But that's true when you look inside of technology. When you define startups more broadly to include local businesses uh, like a, a hair salon or a childcare or, you know, a, a corner bodega, Business formation has actually been on a long decline um, over several decades. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's because fewer and fewer people in the U.S. have the financial resources to try and attempt to start a business. So that, to me, is one of the areas where universal basic income really shines, is that it lets people take risks, including the risk of starting a small business. And what about, I mean, another huge issue in the U.S., too, is disproportional wealth accruement over generations as well. So I understand that universal basic income could provide some financial stability in the immediacy in, in present time. But another big thing, right, is if you come from, you know, like myself, come from, you know, places of privilege where your parents were able to pass down wealth to you and allow you to sort of have a more privileged lifestyle, I think that also is something to consider. And I wonder if there's ways that we can also think about evening the playing field there. Well, Frederick Douglass, in his speech on the 4th of July of what does the 4th of July mean to a slave, has a great sentence where he talks about access to knowledge and mm -hmm. how the masses are kept in darkness. And I do believe this is a place where the Internet can play an incredibly positive role, is access to human knowledge. You know, YouTube is this beast that is both the best and the worst of the Internet all rolled into one. There are extraordinary videos on YouTube explaining almost anything from nuclear physics to how to repair your sink. And then YouTube is full of 
conspiracy manipulation. So I do believe this is another example of, you know, streaming video or recorded video opened the space of extraordinary possibility. And that space includes this beautiful, like there's a channel I love called Number File. It's mathematicians explaining mathematical oddities and <laughs> problems. And they are so full of enthusiasm and they give such like engaging explanations. I, I think there'll be a generation of mathematicians <laughs> that comes out just because they somehow happened on number file and just, you know, got excited about how fun math can be. So at the same time, it's clear that there's, you know, also lots of people who go down complete conspiratorial rabbit holes mm -hmm. uh, on the same platform. So to me, when it comes to opportunity, many of the existing institutions have been defined by the industrial age system mm -hmm. um, that's like K through 12 education, higher education. And we don't live in the industrial age anymore. And so we do need to uh, reinvent these. Can I, I, this is sort of a little, it's kind of a line, but I've been thinking about this recently. Do you think access to the internet should be a basic human right? Well, I, I think that everybody should have enough money that they can get good access to the internet. Yeah. I think how to get universal service, I think there's lots of interesting discussion to be had. But I'll give you just one small example. So the, we're here on a farm. The nearest town is Hudson. My wife and I are building a learning center there called the Spark of Hudson, which hopefully will get final building approval yeah. any day now and be ready in 2021. But one of the things we did, we found out, was that there were about 50 families that, you know, in, in the height of the COVID crisis, uh, didn't have access to the internet and had kids in school. Right. And so what we did is we just got them all phones and they could tether the phones to the laptops. I think it is absolutely essential that people have access yeah. to this resource. It's it's crucial. It's It's where, this is what we're using right now. It is as important as at one point it was to get electricity to your house or right. to get running water to your house. I know. It's that crucial. There's no doubt about it. Right. So that's what I'm wondering. Like, does it become a public sector, uh, you know, entity where, you know, you have your water bill, you have your electricity bill and you have your internet bill instead of being held in the hands of private, you know, private companies with quite frankly, quite little competition, at least in Canada where I am and in the U.S. and it's not a whole lot better either. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, there's a, a huge amount that could be done to improve the ISP, uh, the internet service provider mm -hmm. market. I mean, I, you know, our home is in uh, Manhattan, in Chelsea, Manhattan, on 22nd Street. There is one broadband provider. There's zero mm -hmm. competition. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a crazy state of affairs. And it doesn't have to be that way. There are plenty of countries that show that it doesn't have to be that way. So mm -hmm. I, I think there are some solutions where, especially maybe in rural areas, you need to provide this through some kind of state-subsidized system. But I think in urban areas, there's no excuse why we don't have phenomenal competition driving down the price for everybody of access. Let's maybe switch to this or topic because this was pain? built about talking about currencies. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> I'll, I'll switch over. Well, so the other thing that I know uh, we, we kind of wanted to also talk about was moving beyond just the way we, you know, historically think about currency and looking at other forms of capital. And so in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, immuno capital has been something that has come up and something that I've been as both a scientist and a bioethicist, um, quite engaged in those discussions. And so the idea there is, you know, another way to kind of to allow people to enter into society or certain jobs or social settings if they have the ability to prove that they may have antibodies against the virus and, and therefore would be presumed immune. So this kind of is a bit of a shift in the conversation, but I think an interesting nonetheless, because it's another sort of idea that sort of follows these, uh, you know, follows sort of a capitalistic neoliberal uh, mentality, except using a biological trait, which, of course, I have a lot of concerns on, about. But I wonder if you've kind of been following that in the news and sort of some of the things that you might be thinking about with these so-called immunity passports. Yeah, it's not something I've really been following. Um, you know, I, I think that um, uh, my view is that obviously the U.S. has handled this crisis incredibly <laughs> poorly. Um, yeah. One of my uh, favorite summaries was that somebody said uh, China got a pop quiz and got a passing grade. The U.S. got a take-home exam and failed it, um, <laughs> which I thought captured the uh, you know the knowledge asymmetry between us and China quite well. Um, which is not to say that China didn't do some things very wrong in the early phases of this, but I guess there's sort of in my mind kind of two interesting 
angles here. One is, what does the word capital even mean? And I have, in my own writing, tried to be very careful to make sure that uh, the word capital, when I try to use it, I try to really restrict it to physical capital, which is you know, machines and buildings and infrastructure and, you know, for instance, internet access, which requires cell towers and fiber and whatnot. This is, in my mind, what capital is. And I think it's always very dangerous when the word capital then gets attached to other things, human capital, immunocapital, et cetera. To me, those are not capital. There's financial capital, which is sort of an intermediate stage of producing physical capital. So because the production of physical capital often requires that you pay people before you get paid. That's why we have invented financial capital. But I would agree that um, sort of trying to bring this notion to other areas is very dangerous. And the one area that I've spent a lot of time thinking about isn't immunocapital. It's actually not a term I'd heard before this conversation. <laughs> it's attention capital. You know, it's the idea that you should be compensated for your attention or that we should be allocating human attention via the market. And I think that's a deeply problematic idea. But I'm, I'd be Can you explain that more? Can you explain what you mean by attention? Well, so uh, attention is to time as velocity is to speed, right? So if I say I'm going 45 miles per hour, that's one thing. But if I tell you I'm going up I-95, you know, near some place in Connecticut at 45 miles per hour, that gives you a lot more information. So velocity is speed in a particular direction. And attention is human time where we are consciously applying ourselves to some specific topic, right? Okay. And so, uh, you know, tying this back to an earlier part of the conversation, that the reason why systems such as uh, Twitter and Facebook have become so problematic is because, of course, their fundamental business model is the resale of attention. Right, right. Uh, which is what advertising is. It's like grab a bunch of your attention and then I sell it to an advertiser. Um, some fraction thereof. And, and so that's why they've been engaged in a lot of um, patterns that maximize human attention, but are not actually helpful to the humans whose attention is being grabbed. But I didn't mean to divert from this immunocapital <laughs> thing, because of course, I, I do think a lot of people, you know, in, were sort of like, yeah, you know, you just registered on the blockchain and show that you can, you know, that you're immune. And I agree that there are all sorts of issues with that approach. Yeah. So, of course, given that I look through a lot of these things through a lens of social justice, um, some of the you know biggest issues that I, I see in these ideas is it basically creates a new division by which to divide people biologically. Right. So whether you have immunity or proposed, you know, you may have immunity because let's be clear, we don't necessarily know exactly how immunity works to COVID-19 and whether the antibody tests are always correct. But, you know, it really is this way of sort of dividing the haves and the haves nots once again. And so some of the biggest risks that we and my colleagues see are uh, really actually in, in the context of structural racism, really huge risk to, to increasing discrimination. And so it's been a really interesting conversation because people are kind of taking two different kinds of sides on this argument. Some proponents of immunity passports, um, many of whom are not people of color, I should note, um, are saying that actually people of color could benefit from such a program and that there are such higher prevalences in Black and Latin communities within the U.S. But to me, that seems very naive in that they're ignoring um, sort of already structures in place that could actually lead to, to heightened discrimination for communities of color, whether or not they have immunity passports or not. So, for example, it could provide one more uh, reason for innocent people to be stopped and frisked or, or carded uh, to check their immune status before entering certain spaces. And something that kind of comes back to the economy standpoint and something I've been thinking about, and I'm, I'm curious to know your opinion of this. If we know that frontline workers and many of whom are people of color from low, uh, low and have low paying jobs in those frontline jobs, like, you know, uh, grocery store clerks or people working as orderlies in hospitals, bus drivers, transportation uh, workers are going to be maybe have higher prevalence of COVID-19 infection rates and therefore may have a bigger likelihood of having gained uh, potential immunity. If they get these passports, I could see this playing out in a way that it could actually lock low-income workers into existing jobs in the low-paying front-facing jobs. So it's like, why would you maybe promote one of those workers to a managerial positions that, you know, when you know that they are immune and they may be able to continue to have those service-giving tasks, whereas someone who's not immune may actually get the promotion. And so I could actually see it playing out economically in a way that could continue to increase socioeconomic division. 
I'm wondering if that's just, I'm not an economist in any way, so it's hard for me to think about those things. But I have a lot of concerns about this playing into existing structures. And that's something that I think needs to have a lot of consideration and, and thought given to. And one last thing to understand too, the interplay with technology, where we also have the tradition, you know, the way people think about startups. So like facial recognition startups are right now starting to pivot their platforms to be able to use their platforms for immunity passport applications on, on phones. So I just threw a lot out of you, but yeah, no, no, <laughs> take I mean, what I, you like. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I look, I mean, I think that um, the, the, um, the situation that I've been concerned about for a long time and writing about for a long time is that we essentially have a precariat in the United States, right? So these are people who, you know, if they don't show up at the job, they will lose their apartment, they will be homeless, they will not be able to pay for food like the next week, not like the next year. And the existence of this precariat has made many labor practices possible that I think just simply shouldn't exist. And there's always, in my mind, sort of two, you know, regulatory responses to this. One is like, let's regulate what the employer can or cannot do. Um, my preferred solution is let's give the people money so they can walk away from a bad job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you work at some fast food place and they don't give you masks, you should just be able to walk out the door and say, I'm not working here. You know, yeah. it's like you're not, this is not a safe workplace. But if you can't do that, it's Hirschleifer called it voice and exit, right? So you can complain maybe, but you won't even complain because if you complain, you're going to get fired too. So you're just going to suck it up and put yourself and your family at risk. And so, you know, I think uh, this is a deep structural problem. And the number one way to solve it is to make sure that people have walkaway options. And I do think that, you know, we have tons of evidence, even from this very short period of time, you know, that sending money to people actually worked in a way and it didn't like give people a true walk away option. But, you know, I think people had a little more safety and maybe they could take a little better care of themselves. So but I think if we switch to that, if you got this check every month, people would insist on having a better and a safer work environment. So so to me, that's like a very important approach. You know, I think that um, the questions around facial recognition are absolutely fascinating and you know, there are startups that uh, work on this, including our portfolio, but there are also some interesting applications of just visual recognition technology, which, for example, if you're trying to, in like a factory, um, get to compliance with a masks, you kind of need to be able to monitor that. And you could try to do that through more traditional social means, but like people don't really like to sort of rat out their colleague and mm-hmm. say, hey, that <laughs> colleague keeps taking off their mask. I mean, people generally don't like to do that. And you don't really want to set up a system where that's necessarily how it works. And so I do think like one legitimate application of this technology is to make sure that people are wearing safety equipment, you know, and, and, and now, again, these need to go hand in hand with people need to be able to walk away from places that don't offer safety equipment, but conversely, places that do offer safety equipment and offer a lot of it, I do think also have a legitimate use case where they say, and we want to make sure people are using it, you know, because Using it, as we know, I mean, we had workers here today in the house who, because we had some water problem that had to be fixed, it's kind of a pain. You need to use Mm -hmm. it and you're working and it's, you know, you're sweaty and you're inhaling your own breath again. It's kind of unpleasant. But we all know that it's a crucial aspect of getting on top of this particular pandemic since it's airborne. So I have a question, though, about, you know, this idea of using visual recognition or, I mean, to monitor and sort of questions of privacy. I mean, you could see it's, you know, when we talk, we talk about these double-edged swords, you know, almost for the last 40 minutes, that's come up many times already. You know, how do you avoid a situation where you have sort of this big brother, you know, idea and now they know, you know, this certain person wasn't wearing one then and this one wasn't wearing one the other time and how that could start to easily expand into monitoring people's, you know, rate of output of their work, um, monitoring other sorts of behaviors. I mean, as an ethicist, of course, that's where I go at first. So I'm wondering, how do you protect against, you know, the negative ramifications? Well, I I think this is always the, you know, my, my view is we need to increase personal freedom, individual freedom. So much of what I write about in my book, World After Capital, is I write about three freedoms. I call them economic freedom, informational freedom, and psychological freedom. And economic freedom is some form of universal basic income. 
informational freedom is making the existing systems programmable. So I believe Twitter and Facebook ought to be programmable. Right now, they're programming us. We should be able to program them. And then psychological freedom is, you know, some kind of uh, mindfulness. You know, we talked earlier about education. I think one of the great flaws of the education system is that you can go through all of K through 12 or higher ed, even graduate school, and never, never is there a, here is the owner's guide to your brain. And here is, you know, and we're now going to practice yoga. We're now going to practice breathing. And we're now going to practice meditation. Like that's like all sorts of other things are mandatory. Like there's mandatory math class which I think we can have a long discussion over whether that's important or not. Uh, but it seems almost trivially obvious that uh, mindfulness is a huge superpower for everybody who has developed it to a degree. And emotional intelligence. I want yeah. to add that in there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I guess my answer always is, I think increasing individual freedom allows individuals to have a different bargaining position vis-a-vis the entities that they belong to. Those are companies, those are groups, those are individual partnerships, those are cities they live in. And I believe that when you increase individual bargaining power, you then enable groups to come together and exercise increased bargaining power. You also enable people to better participate in political processes to, for example, spend time educating themselves on the issues, to have the time to go vote, to have the resources to organize. So I think too much of our reaction is to sort of say, well, the government needs to intervene and the government needs to regulate this and regulate that, as opposed to say, let's give power to the people so that they can organize themselves as they see fit. And this maybe is a good transition to talk about currencies for a moment, because I think one of the things that I'm interested in is the potential for new local currencies to emerge or potentially global currencies, but in, you know, groups that create money for themselves. This is sort of, at some level, that is the foundational breakthrough of a blockchain is to solve the so-called double spent problem. And I believe that's interesting because so much of what we've done in many of the developed countries in the last decade plus since the financial crisis, so we're talking since 2008, is we have massively inflated the money supply. And much of the benefit of that has accrued to very few people, has accrued to the already wealthy for the most part. And so it has been an incredible amplifier of wealth and income inequality that already existed and that was hard driven by digital technology, but we've massively amplified it. And so I guess my reaction on the ethics question often is that I don't think government knows any better how to regulate these technologies. And so I think individual communities need to be able to choose for themselves how they want to deploy specific technologies. Yeah. And so that requires a dispersion of power, right? Yeah. And that's why I talk about these three freedoms. Another way of calling a freedom is I want to increase the power that individuals hold. Right. And so I think we're in complete agreement there of really trying to move away from this, you know, top down approach to this really sort of bottom-up collective approach to towards, you know, governance and decision-making. I think the thing that I struggle with is, and it's really come to a head during this pandemic, is that balance between individual liberty and collective action. So we're seeing that play out a lot where this, you know, over-focus on the individual and autonomy is leading to people not wearing masks, for example, or not, you know, taking sort of precautions in a time of pandemic, which would really require sort of more collective action and solidarity. And so the question I'm kind of curious about is your thoughts on how how the two interplay and how do you create, you know, we all want to be, have our individual freedoms and liberties to pursue our happiness and dignity. But the question is, how does that then go towards sort of collective actions that ensure that those, you know, we're, we're working as community, but also ensuring the freedoms of others? No, I think that's a, obviously a crucial question. I think that um, people's desire and ability to form well-functioning communities starts with their ability to choose where they live, which very few people can do these days. If you look at any study of geographic movement in the U.S., it's declined substantially. It starts with people being able to engage in the local political process, Mm -hmm. right? So, 
you know, if the local political process produces leaders that are non-scientifically oriented, that are, you know, that if you produce leadership that doesn't lead by example, that doesn't set the right community standards, then yes, you'll wind up with these issues. But I do think that this isn't a top-down solvable problem, right? For a country like the US that is so diverse, and frankly, a country that has so underinvested in giving people access to knowledge for such a long time. Yeah. Well, it's actually specifically tried not to. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. That's the better way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I look at Germany, for example, you know, just the average person has access to great education. That's where I grew up. And um, they've had a much easier time telling people, look, here's why masks work. And it's a lot easier to establish a consensus around mask wearing when people aren't so susceptible to crazy theories about masks. Yeah, not even like just ideologies that are dominant in some of the discussions, right? I can echo what you're saying. Having, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen. I grew up in Canada. I lived in the U.S. for quite some time, and now I'm back in Canada, and I've been really watching things unfold, you know, with these two neighboring countries. And it is unbelievable the difference in outcomes, and I think it's multifolded, multifaceted, though. I think the other thing that this has really demonstrated is the instability and unsustainable nature of the systems in the United States, right? So when you don't have things like universal health care, when you don't have, like you said, an educated populace with equal access to high quality education, when you don't have livable minimum wage, like we're not even talking about universal income yet, we're just talking about, you know, minimum wage. When you have pollution and you have issues of different communities living in horrible conditions, this is what happens with a pandemic. Even if there had been amazing leadership, I don't even know if it would have been able to avert, you know, all of what we've seen because of those underlying inequities and, you know, really sickness in the systems. And so when I think about this, I also think, you know, if we are going to be empowering individuals, and here's a perfect example, we can't even get a livable minimum wage in the U.S. So how do you see going, you know, past that to even try and push for something like universal income in a country that has the political, even let's even leave aside the political will right now, because that's a complicating factor. But how, how do you see that actually playing out? Well, I, I, um, I believe this is part and parcel of this transition that we're in. We're in this transition from the industrial age to something new. And in some ways, the industrial age is, you know, several decades past its expiration date. From an environmental perspective, from a distribution perspective, from a what are the important problems to solve perspective. So I believe these kind of transitions are very profound and they take a while. So I think this is a generational, if not multi-generational project. You know, it took us quite a while to get out of the agrarian age into the industrial age. In fact, I think, unfortunately, Rick, Basically, we didn't fully make it out of the agrarian age until the end of World War II, which kind of destroyed the agrarian power base for good in Europe. And um, I think it will take us quite a long time to get out of the industrial age into something new. So, you know, my wife and I were early supporters of Andrew Yang and his campaign. Um, we recorded a podcast with Andrew oh. yesterday. <laughs> rubbing shoulders with some pretty important people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, but the fun part is, is I had told Andrew before he ran that in Switzerland, it took something like a dozen or more ballots before women got the right to vote. It like had to be tried again and again and again. And there are things that we take completely for granted today that took a long time to get. And so I think ideas Good ideas are powerful because they keep coming back and new people keep discovering them. And, and so while I don't think there's some kind of automatic moral arc of history, I do think that good ideas are worth fighting for because over time, you know, that you have a shot of getting them done. But I've really adjusted my expectations as to how quickly that could be. Now, this crisis has accelerated a lot of things. I mean, I think the level of public discourse in the U.S. and in other places because people realize that a minimum wage doesn't cut it in this situation. If you're fired from your job, the level of minimum wage is completely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe just to finish up, I agree with you completely about this need to sort of have the long view, you know, and obviously working for incremental change in the meantime, but really thinking long term. And I think that's what allows us to have the expansiveness to really imagine what the future should, you know, could look like. 
One thing that I'm curious um, your thoughts on is if we're, you know, we're talking about this transitions in, in our capitalist sort of systems and economies. And one thing that excites me, um, especially as for someone who's, who aligns somewhat with, um, you know, feminist philosophies as well, is this moving away from sort of this, again, top down, down sort of hierarchical trickle down economy uh, to a more, you know, bottom up collective idea. Um, and so something, of course, that I'm really drawn to are these ideas of circular economies. So I'm wondering sort of how maybe if you could kind of give I'm curious to think of like how you see circular economies playing out in this space and if that you think is something that would also be really critical to creating these new different kinds of systems. So I think the um, circular economy concept is in incredibly important and um, Dame Ellen MacArthur yeah. <laughs> has done a fantastic job um, on uh, getting the word out about this. Um, also, what an incredible <laughs> sailor. Um, but when I think about the transition here, the big forcing function, in my mind, has more to do with the climate crisis. And while the circular economy addresses that to a degree, there is a cycle that is the most important cycle, and that's the carbon cycle. And, you know, a lot of the things that we've had in this conversation, a lot of these things are going to turn out to be meaningless if we don't get on top of this particular problem. And the way I, I sort of conceive of this problem is that as a first approximation for the last, you know, 200 plus years, we've been digging fossil fuels out of the ground and burning them, thus putting carbon that was in the ground into the atmosphere. And for the next 200 years, if we want to flourish as a species, we need to be pulling that carbon out of the air and putting it back into the ground. We need to reverse the carbon cycle. To me, this is the biggest justice issue in the world because this crisis that is building and that is unabated, this crisis will kill billions of people if we don't get on top of it, and it will disproportionately affect um, mm -hmm. the poor. That is, mm -hmm. unless we have a revolution, mm -hmm. maybe then it will change. But, um, so I think that um, while I'm, I'm a fan of the circular economy thinking, I also believe it's crucial that we focus on uh, greenhouse gases as the thing that we direct most of our attention and our resources to. And I would love to hear, you know, from you, whether you sort of have this ethicist perspective onto the climate crisis and, and how you see the sort of ways that we might fight it. Well, thank you for asking that because I didn't put this in my intro, but I teach environmental ethics. So in part because I, I kind of got into that space because I really look at sort of the nexus of technology, the environment, and humans, um, and the idea of emergent technologies and their application in the environment. So that could be things like genetic technologies and ideas of using them to, you know, genetically modify mosquitoes that might carry malaria, for example, or to eliminate invasive species. And then, of course, the climate and the climate change issues that we're facing is sort of just like this underlying constant in the class that I teach, right? Because it's impacting, you know, all parts of our lives, both, both the, in the human and the non-human world. So one thing that we discuss a lot, and I think that this is something that I'm glad we can have a quick moment to chat about because it's something that's left out of discussions at the policy level, um, even at the local level, and that really is our human relationship with non-human nature, right? And how are we going to move beyond this sort of dominant idea right now where humans have dominion over nature, that it's there for our taking, that we're separate from nature, and move into, as we move through this transition, really thinking about more of a relationship where we are a part of nature, where we are connected and highly dependent on the natural world in a way that's respectful and has humility and thinks long term, right? Again, with the Western dominant views, it's always sort of been looking at the present and maybe like your children and maybe your children's children. But how do we really think across generations? And I think these recent protests um, with children rising up for climate change has really shown that this is an intergenerational equity issue and something that needs to be considered as well, that many of the decisions we're making now, we will not have to face the risks or, or even benefits of those decisions, right? I wish it were so. I think this will pretty uh, itself well out within our lifetimes. So I it, agree. it will impact our own lives, not just the lives of our children. Oh, I mean, it's already impacting our lives now. I mean, 41 degrees Celsius in Toronto tomorrow is not normal for us here, and we're seeing die-off of species. But when we talk about things like using technologies in the environment, 
So geoengineering, for example, when you're talking about removing carbon from the atmosphere. So this is the idea of, of reversing that process, right, of, of capturing carbon or perhaps changing sunlight so that it doesn't warm the atmosphere in the same way by shooting aerosols into the upper stratosphere. These are really big decisions that could have really long-term impacts. And so those are things that we will have to be thinking about future generations when we make those choices. And what really concerns me is when we are thinking about the environment and how we're going to live with it, I can't find a way, I can't find an, a way that we can do so without humbling ourselves to nature and looking at ourselves in an interconnected way and moving, moving beyond this sort of dominant perspective that's been in place for so long and that really dominated the extractive economies of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I guess I have a super different view on that, um, <laughs> which is that humans are the dominant force of nature. It's not that we you know, uh, and and to me, the conclusion from that is the you know um, is Spiderman's the, this great fund of philosophical wisdom. Like with great power comes great responsibility, right? I mean, we are responsible for the whales, not the whales for us. I mean, that's sort of like blindingly obvious. And I think that we are engaged and have been engaged in a two hundred year experiment in geoengineering. So like. We are geoengineering the Earth. Yeah. We are engineering into Mars right now. We're taking a beautiful planet and turning it into a dead one. So the idea that we're not geoengineering, we're doing it. So I think that my view on geoengineering research is, you know, it's a lot like chemotherapy. If you were healthy, you would never do chemotherapy. But if you have yeah. cancer, you would much prefer well-researched chemotherapy over injecting random chemicals in your body. And so I actually think it's essential that we research geoengineering because we're yeah. so far behind. I think if if I felt that we were less far behind, I might have a different view on that. But, um, you know, building, working on what the emergency break might look like, if it's pretty clear that we might need it, um, seems like a, a fairly important thing. So I, I guess my view of humans is humans are the central force. We have shaped the environment. I mean, we are the cause of the sixth extinction. You know, eventually it'll catch up with us. We'll be its target. It's other species that are have been its target first, but I think I think that um, I believe we need to own our position, and we need to see that because of our position, we have such great responsibility to ourselves, to future human generations, and to other species on this planet. So I think that sort of right. to me, the moral argument sort of runs the opposite direction. I guess. Well, I'm not sure. I think we agree on the standpoint, you know, on the stance that humans have great responsibility to make healthy choices for both the non-human and humans that share this planet. I think the difference there is understanding where the limit is to hubris. So, so understanding the limits of our knowledge and when we need to be cautious because we don't actually know the outcomes of our actions. And that's been shown throughout history. I also want to push back, you know, and I think what you're basically arguing for is this, you know, the idea of the Anthropocene, right? So humans are now sort of dominating and shifting our geological era. I find that a concerning, I sometimes find that a concerning um, nomenclature and that once again, it puts humans at the center of everything. And so the question is, when do we start sharing that and thinking about the other species that we share the planet with? And that's what's concerning to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, my point is, it's sort of, um, we have changed the environment massively. Oh, yes. Extraordinarily, right? And yeah. so I think from there, there's really only kind of two fundamental paths that one could take. And one path is the path of saying, we're just going to continue. And then the other path is, we're going to try and go backwards. And what I mean by this difference is that I definitely think that there is a path along which we just let this climate catastrophe play itself out and we Ooh. wind up um, being many fewer humans and Ooh. have a lower <laughs> impact on the environment. Um, it's not my preferred option. Um, no. <laughs> and so I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I think there is some profound truth in the story of the fall from paradise being related to knowledge. Why do I think this? I think this because whatever we've done using human knowledge has always had unforeseen consequences. You know, when we invented agriculture, we wound up cohabiting with animals that wound up introducing all sorts of diseases into humanity, terrible, horrible diseases. When we invented the internal combustion engine, you know, we, as we said earlier, we increased individual mobility, but we also led to this ultimate climate crisis. And and so I think knowledge has put us on this treadmill where we invent things 
and the things we invent then cause problems that we then need to solve. I don't think we can get off that. I mean, we could get off this treadmill, but I think getting off this treadmill really is the great reset, right? And I don't, it's not where I personally want to go because I personally prefer living now over living, you know, let's say in the Middle Ages. You know, I, I love that we have antibiotics. I love that <laughs> I can get my teeth fixed or an implant and all those things. So to me, this is why, you know, as we think about this problem, we really have no choice but to create even more knowledge and to solve the problems that we've created. The alternative, the only alternative, is some kind of great reset, which we, where we may be headed anyhow. <laughs> well, to kind of bring us full circle, and I think it's a great way to end, is I think I just wanted to point out this idea of how we define we, right? And so if we think about the we's that have gotten us to this place, um, it's been a pretty narrow group of we's. And so I do see this way of when we talk about expanding knowledge, it's also understanding that there's different kinds of knowledge and how do we incorporate sort of different ways of being and knowledge and how we address these issues. And I, I see, I don't want to put all my hope in one basket, but I see that as being a fundamental way of helping to, to make a, a better um, and more flourishing future. I completely agree that we need to, uh, you know, have these different perspectives I also think that the climate crisis will not care where you live, who you are, um, for the most part. It will care to a degree about how wealthy you are. And so there's this injustice built into it. But I, I think that um, the fundamental physics of it are fairly incontrovertible. And so I think the we here, in my mind, needs to be the people who believe that science is a solution to that. And obviously... As you pointed out, there's many different ways that you can practice science and there's many different ways you can apply it. And I, on that part, I fully agree. Um, I think there's a very fine line from going to there to going back to a pre-scientific age. And that I, right. I think one needs to push back against very hard. But when we talk about human ingenuity, how do we bring in, you know, indigenous perspectives? How do we bring in this perspectives of more women, people of color, people that will be impacted, children? maybe even non-human voices, people speaking for nature. I think there's a lot of space we can work to expand what human ingenuity really looks like. And that's what, that's what makes me re really hopeful, actually. And I'm sure you too. Yep, absolutely. Fantastic. Well. Well, this went somewhere completely different, but I, I'm, I'm game for it. <laughs> it's a pleasure meeting you. Wonderful to meet you too. And uh, let's stay in touch as, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, as hopefully you survive the heat wave in Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was rather insightful. What do you think about that, Tim? Interesting. I mean, it's interesting to to witness how this type of conversation has changed and how important or how prominent social justice was. Inclusivity, access to decision-making, inclusion of indigenous communities, marginalized populations. It probably would have been a different conversation last year. Than Absolutely true. So how did you experience as a person the last couple of months? Yeah, I mean, the protest against structural racism in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and, and many other cases, I, I guess I realized how little I know. You know, mm -hmm. this is such a cliche. Uh, and I lived in the US where maybe some of these issues are more uh, part of the mainstream conversation or more omnipresent in a way. But still, I was thinking that how naive I had been and how, yeah, how ignorant frankly. And we had a discussion with our team about it. And like everybody else, right, we started reading books and, and just trying to inform ourselves. But I guess I still have this feeling like I, I mean, I know so little and I really need to educate myself. I don't know. I feel very naive and ignorant when it comes to structural racism and how it affects me and most importantly, how it affects others. Mm -hmm. And then the other topic that they talked about was immunocapital. Uh, Natalie Kofler, very much opposed to the idea of immunocapital, saying that it will create a new divide, a new class of citizens, uh, new social inequality. What do you think? And how likely do you think it's going to become a mainstream phenomenon? Well, I never heard of this, to be honest. On the one hand, I think, I think the social justice thing, I think, was always there in the past. Uh, somehow, COVID-19 amplifies it into the future. I think from my very personal perspective and also share how I perceived the last couple of months, actually when, when COVID-19 started, I was taking care more of my health than ever before. So doing more sports, um, 
taking care of my nutrition, etc. And I think then you have, like, like you described, you feel naive because you don't understand what's happening, but you feel that something that is given, like your health, um, I think it was not the highest priority beforehand in my life, somehow gets the most precious thing and you don't take life and being healthy for granted. And I think that's basically what I've had taken from the last couple of months. So I think it was rather insightful. I would say a further outstanding episode of the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast season two. So we will find further episodes on every podcasting platform and looking forward to the next time you tune in. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you.